Hello and welcome to the Alt Book Club podcast, the online spin-off from the Literary Comedy Night. I am your host, Shirley Hulse, and today we are joined by comedian and PhD student, Zoe McKee. Hi, Zoe. How are you? I'm all right, Shirley. How, how are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm <laughs> tired and I'm ready for holidays. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Um, what, are, what are you studying? Right, so I am a final year PhD student, uh, desperately, desperately final year, try, trying to finish. I research uh, 18th century courtship novels looking at uh, the ideas of consent and how those were represented at the time, how that might match up with what was going on in uh, various sort of sexual crime court cases and how that links back up to the way we think about consent today. Are there any particular books that you look at specifically or is it kind of just like everything? Uh, I mean, (laughs) I can't, I sadly can't look at everything. Mm. Um, So I focus on female authors and then mm. I try and look across a range because I'm trying to demonstrate the presence of this idea. Uh, it's important for me to look at it in a number of books, but there are lots of really, really fantastic women writing at this point that we've kind of forgotten about, which is really sad. Any that you want to highlight right now? Charlotte Lennox is amazingly funny. Uh, the Female Quixote is one of her novels. There is only one joke, but she goes for this one joke all the way through and it's generally hilarious. And then uh, Mary Hayes writes a terrible, terrible novel that's incredibly useful for for like analyzing and looking at this stuff in history so she's got like uh, a description of PTSD coming in in the 1790s way way before we even knew this was a thing or what symptoms that might display wow I feel really embarrassed because I have not heard of either of those women and that shows how my education was very much dead white men well I mean I hadn't heard of either of them either and I just finished doing a master's degree in the 18th century it's really very much the way our education system is set up I mean half of these authors are not available uh, other than from a small niche fantastic uh, print company called Broad- the Broadview Press if you ever want to go looking for the, the sort of books that you don't think exist mm. they they are the place to go okay brilliant thank you let's get started what are you going to talk to us about today well I'm going to talk to you today about one of my pet peeves uh, which is uh, Jane Austen criticism mm. yeah see Jane Austen is one of the authors I work with and she's one of the ones that people have actually heard of but as part of that research it's important for me to go and look at what other people like me have said about her And the thing is that I I have never encountered an author where so much has been written about them and so much of it is absolute garbage. It's not just like some people don't like her and that's fine. Like They are obviously entitled to their opinions. They're wrong, um, but they're entitled to their opinions and I will just silently judge them and we can all kind of get on with it and that's fine. Uh, But there are a couple of kind of groups in in this criticism of just really, really bizarre and just stupid uh, like I've lost the word but basically uh, the first one of these groups is what I like to call the uh, Napoleonic War fan club brigade and they're basically like the inverse of that faulty tower sketch where all they want her to do is mention the war uh, so they they don't like they look at everything she does all of the like social commentary all of the really innovative technical stuff uh, just all the humor and all they go is uh, no and she hasn't talked about the Napoleonic War, it's unacceptable, I'm not interested in this book, but they're interested enough to write a book complaining about the fact that she hasn't written about the war. I don't think these people kind of go around to all of the Napoleonic War books, of which there are quite a lot, and go, well, this author, you know, the, the where are the women? Uh, where, you know, where's where's the domestic life? No, it's it's literally just that, like, because she lived through the war, she's sort of obligated to write about it. 
in mm. some in some kind of weird way. And I mean, this this viewpoint it goes on for decades. It's popular enough that there is a Terry Pratchett parody of this literary critical right. position <laughs> in one of his novels. It just baffles me that you have this sort of like decades worth of people coming to a writer and all they're saying is I wanted her to talk about the war and she hasn't and I'm upset. So they are kind of the the biggest bafflement to me uh, and the biggest waste of paper. And then we move on to uh, people that all I can kind of really describe as is the ones we need to blame the Victorians for. Because the Victorians liked categorising stuff and putting it in lists and putting it in boxes. And they decided they were going to make this thing called the canon, which is like basically that that meme where you have God tier and then like high tier all the way down to shit tier of, of kind of how good things are. And they put all of the books, all the books in the world into this sort of tier system and they went right Shakespeare Shakespeare is god tier he's amazing and then they kind of went well Austin Austin would be god tier she's the only one who's up there with Shakespeare but um she's a woman like she has she has boobs she has she has feelings we can't possibly have that so she's got to be she's got to be like lower down and you then like from then on have a lot of people writing about her going yeah she's a woman um she writes about women things um, we don't really like that. And it's sort of, again, there's this kind of idea that writing about domestic life isn't political. Uh, and it's something that we've been pushing back against for a long time. But it's sort of a, a kind of great men view of history where the only thing you can actually write about to be deemed a great writer is sort of big wars, um, among other things, <laughs> and uh, and kingship and stuff. So talking about women's experience at home was seen as very light and frothy and frivolous and it wasn't always seen that way by any means but we decided in our kind of grand ranking system that that just made it not very good and they 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 again they have like a little a little subgroup where uh, some of them say oh it's really lucky that she she stuck to talking about just the domestic stuff because like that's all she's really capable of doing and so she stayed she knew her limits um, and then there's the people who are like oh if only she'd written about more important stuff she could have been a more important author so yeah I kind of I kind of look at, at this criticism and the Napoleonic War fan club just kind of baffles me and the sort of two-tier ranking system again slightly baffles me and then I come to the the kind of final and, and thankfully much smaller group in these kind of critical cabals uh, and it's the group that say oh you know Austen she's a massive chauvinist she hates women and and I just I kind of I'm staring at these books telling me that Austen hates women and they and they they're usually like very earnestly written and these are the ones that that I kind of have more respect for the authors in some way because I feel like they care much more about the actual books but I just fundamentally disagree with them and they kind of they talk a lot about the humiliation of Elizabeth Bennet and how you know she has to be shown to be wrong and Austen has to like bring her around to the the societal order and force her into a sort of normative marriage where that's that's the sort of happy ending and this I mean this goes against a lot of the stuff that I I write about because I'm very big on uh, the power of choice and for me one of the things Austin does in that moment is not humiliate Elizabeth but actually show that she she's allowed to make a mistake about men and not go to hell forever and ever and ever so you kind of have a disproportionate number of words written that say absolutely nothing at all about an author whom it's perfectly possible to write a massive number of words because she's absolutely brilliant Brilliant. Thank you very much. Oh my gosh, I had my head in my hands for so much of this. <laughs> 
What a waste of time. You're absolutely right. She's like written so much brilliant stuff and it's like, well, she didn't do the typical, like this is like a woman on the internet, right? Gets all of this. (laughs) And of course, Jane Austen would be subject to it, even though she's, you know, dead and was a phenomenal writer. Oh my gosh. Um, I don't know where to start. I love this stuff about the Napoleonic War. Why do you think she didn't write about the Napoleonic War? I mean, I think if you've just lived through a war for most of your life, maybe you don't want to also write about it in your books. Mm. Uh, but also, I mean, one of the reason I love the Toe Pratchett parody is it's actually really insightful. It's in um, his novel Snuff. Jane Austen is in that is in that novel, and her character responds to this criticism. She says, "Like I want to write novels about interpersonal relationships and the way people feel and their hopes and dreams, and like how this affects their their personal life." And the guy says, "Oh, I maybe I put I put a war in, and maybe some big chase scenes, and make it a bit more exciting." And she kind of says, "Don't you think that might get in the way of the interpersonal relationships?" Mm, that's really strange that we value, and again, I say we value, and you said we don't decided about who was like the best and all of that stuff when we say we 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 mostly mean men right (laughs) men decided I mean I really do blame the Victorians uh, for a lot of this because the first question I usually get when I tell people what I do is oh were there any women actually writing in the 18th century and the thing is that um, back then novel writing was a primarily female job most novelists were women like most of the really respected ones were men because again obviously only men can do the important stuff but god it's like tv chefs isn't it (laughs) it really is um but like there were a lot of like pulpy women writers go like churning out gothic fiction there were also a lot of excellent women writers there was like it was almost like they were all individuals with different skill levels and different like qualities I um, imagine yeah I know but then a lot of them get forgotten because the Victorians really don't like the idea of women doing anything mm. professionally so they all sort of disappear out of the canon and suddenly we forget all about them I guess if you're not printed then there's not really much of a way for you to survive but the thing is that they're not printed anymore or not very much but they were huge they were mm. huge at the time I mean, Jane Austen has has survived like really strongly, uh, and Frances Burney is another one who survived pretty well. But these novels were were massive, and one of the fun things with with Austen is that there's a series of novels that's known as like the the Northanger novels, because in in Northanger Abbey there's a scene where they talk about reading books and how reading books is actually a, a really good thing, and she mentions some some excellent novels. And we thought, I say we, critics for ages thought that some of these novels were made up. No, really? It's yeah. like stuff like the, is it the Mysteries of Adolfo? Yeah, I... so some, yeah, Adolfo's in there, Camilla's in there, Evelina. There were a few other books, but they thought they maybe didn't exist. And then they later found them and were like, oh, oh, these novels that were famous enough to be cited in this really popular work where she talks about really popular novels you know, they they kind of got lost almost. I bet this is true of every generation. Like, so the things that are really, really popular right now, like Chiclet, that is really looked down upon, probably will be very easily forgotten, even though it's hugely valuable to so many people. I don't know, even the name Chiclet kind of degrading a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the, the way we genre categorize now um, really affects how we value stuff. So like, again, I've, I've talked about Terry Pratchett and this is sort of one of my pet theories is that for me, the writer Terry Pratchett is most similar to is Charles Dickens. I think they write in very similar ways and they mm. characterize cities and city life and kind of satirize it in very similar ways. 
but one of them is a classic author who is uh, worthy and we should greatly respect and esteem and it gets really boring because like oh my god how much can you go on about dickens and the other one is a fantasy author who although is the most stolen author from bookshops doesn't get given as much critical weighting and he hasn't been around for as long but the works we don't tend to think about in the same way like if i wrote an essay about him people wouldn't expect it to have they'd have to defend why you'd why you'd written about him in Jane Austen's really young work, in her juvenilia, she does kind of tackle some bigger stuff in that she tackles like the history of the kings and queens of England. That's obviously not taken seriously because she's a teenager, but it is like tremendously fun. So I have read the juvenilia, but I haven't spent that much time with it, um, partly because I, I, I'm really interested in in sort of the novels and in what she's doing but I think it's interesting that you say like she takes on the really big stuff and the the really big stuff we think of as as kings and queens um Mm -hmm. because for me the the stuff that I work on with her is is to do with sort of female independence and uh, capacity for judgment and freedom of choice and a lot of the stuff that for women generally and women in that time period where things were even more restricted that's kind of a fundamental of, of day-to-day life and of the way your existence is shaped and conditioned so it's kind of funny that we think like a history of kings and queens is the big stuff mm. and um, your freedom to control your own income when you get married is is a small thing I guess because it's that sort of big picture small picture stuff so for the country the kings and queens they so we've sort of coded them as being really significant and they obviously they were because they shaped policy but it's sort of are they significant for their policy or are they significant for themselves as individuals because if once they start having less policy control they become less significant that like we see now with the royal family now are like great subjects for the tv drama but maybe not the most influential on our day-to-day lives. I've fallen into the trap by describing it as the big stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely my own fault. This is my way of like skirting around the fact that I don't know it amazingly well. (laughs) Oh no, that's fine. I just love it because it's like like extremely silly and she can be silly and she is very, very funny in her later novels, but like the way that she is silly as a teenager Mm. is like, I, I don't know, it just really connects with the way that I love being silly. But I think she kind of almost, with the kings and queens of England, she kind of does take them down a peg or two and show them to be kind of insignificant because she's like, <laughs> oh, if you want to find out more, you'll have to read someone else's biography. Or like, he was a very naughty man or something, you know, yeah. just like really like extremely silly. And I love that because basically it, it contains no real information. It's the only interesting history of England. I think I think my favourite bit in her, her juvenile is that, it's the quote that gets pulled out all the time, but it's when she says like, you can run wild as often as you like, but do not faint um she just sort of has this sense of joy I think in her younger writings I mean she has it she has it in her later writings too but the younger ones are just very like you say like unfetteredly silly um Mm. she can jump to whatever she wants because she's just having fun she's not writing a worthy whatever like she's a Mm. she's a teenager having fun with words and that's just really it's really fun yeah it's great to see someone playing like that Yeah, and I love, you can kind of see the steps that she's taking to get where she does get eventually. My favourite bit from the juvenilia that I quote all the time or like think about often is there's these two friends and one of them saying, oh, like, I don't think I look very nice. And then the other one's like, ah, she knew exactly what Louisa wanted, a compliment. So she gave her one and they went on their ways. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) Do I I look all right? This is not an honest answer that I'm requiring. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they parted the best of friends. I just, I just think it's gorgeous. When you 
you are not studying for your PhD, what do you read for fun? So I've just, I've been, I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks at the moment. The current pandemic stuff has made me feel a lot more anxious about the world for no discernible reason. Um, so I tend to do a lot of crochet and, and hand-based crafts so that I can fidget and not feel um, mm. too panicked. So I've been listening to Brandon Sanderson's The Rhythm of War, uh, which is the fourth part in his Stormlight Archive, which is fabulous. And then when I am reading, I tend to do this thing every Christmas where I go back and I reread the Noel Streetfield books sort of ballet shoes and white boots and theater shoes and oh. I just love it it feels so Christmassy to me that's really nice it's nice to get into like a habit and revisit things I think especially if there's a way that books can be kind of a time and place for you yeah I love that I think that's very unique I don't find that with lots of books but there are some where I'm like oh yes I was there reading that and coming coming back I mean it's, it's they feel very sort of warm and welcoming but they're also not uh, they're not like a soft touch who's very much and you, know, you need to work hard if you're if you're going to work hard you know if this is going to be your profession and you're not going to work hard what are you doing here there's sort of no um there's not very much sugar coating despite the fact that it's a very warm and fuzzy set of kids books I feel similarly about oh what is it I capture the castle oh see I've only seen the film of that but I'd never even heard of it until like maybe last year and then I read it and it was just just like really gorgeous mm -hmm. like a lovely mid-war story where the war doesn't really come into it that much <laughs> how dare it funny that living in England <laughs> when the war is kind of abroad thank you very much for talking about Jane Austen and her critics right we're going to swap round now as this will be the last alt book club podcast of 2020 I thought I'd do a roundup and review of some of the most memorable books I've read this year and I carefully use the word memorable rather than favourite because what 2020 has been to the world 2020 has also been to my reading so 2020 has been a roller coaster of a year right mostly the part of the roller coaster where you just drop from the sky for ages and wonder if you will be alive to tell the tale this year I have read more books that I actively dislike than any other year in my lifetime and this includes university where I literally got a degree for reading although to be fair it is hard to whip up very strong feelings about wikipedia entries in the interest of balance I'm going to start with a book that I absolutely loved that's wild swans by Zhang Chang and I loved it so much, in fact, that it's now one of my top books of all time. Before this year, though, it had sat on my shelf for about three years because it's huge uh, and the content seemed pretty remote. But in spring, I was asked to teach Chinese history from 1911 to 1990. And yes, I am in no way qualified to do this. So I learned in a very short space of time quite a lot, luckily slightly faster than my student. And so Wild Swans is a biography and autobiography across three generations of women across the period I was teaching. So I thought this might help me blag my way through a bit better than just using the textbook. I won't go into too much detail because unless you've recently been forced to teach modern Chinese history, a summary would be largely meaningless to you. But I do want to say that the scope and depth and humanity of these three lives are phenomenal. The times they live through are harsh in numerous ways, particularly for women, but they're all so brave in the face of what, what is pretty much active and casual tyranny. And the writing has an incredible sense of place, so much so that I have started learning Mandarin after finishing the book so that one day I could go to some of the places that she describes, which is a pretty intense reaction to a book. So my second book is A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. People love this book. At Real Life Alt Book Club in September last year, Liza Tate Bailey gave a talk about how amazing this book is. And I was given a physical copy of it as a leaving gift for a job I did last year because my then boss described it as one of the most profound and beautiful books she had ever read. So it's 600 pages long, so I'd been saving it for a time when I needed something profound and life-changing. The perfect book for a pandemic, I thought. And then just before I started reading it, I was on a video call with some friends from an old job in London. 
and I mentioned I was about to read the book and suddenly someone came out with the only negative comic I've ever heard about this book. Oh, I'd heard it was a bit of a misery fest and maybe this was the seed and maybe I would have disliked it anyway. I will never know, but I'm very shamefaced to admit that it was a bit of a misery fest. Or at 600 pages, actually a fairly significant misery fest. This opinion makes me feel like a heartless bitch in many, many ways. Not least because loads of people that I love and respect name it as one of their favorite books. It also makes me feel like a bad person because there are a number of really, truly horrible things that happen to the protagonist. And I don't wanna seem like I don't care about those awful things, but you know when you watch the news too much and it's just relentlessly awful and either you have to switch off and have a bit of a scream or you kind of just become numb to it all. This is how I felt reading this book. I basically vacillated between those two points. There's a really, really horrible plot point towards the end of the novel, which I do not want to spoil, but I remember reading it and rolling my eyes, <laughs> muttering of bloody course, which was not the takeaway I was supposed to have. I think the humane reaction would be to cry. But by that point, I had kind of had enough of the writer going, what other bad stuff can I make happen to this poor guy? And how can I explain in the same way how he feels miserable about it? So I'm very, very sorry to the people who love this book. I don't know what's wrong with me. In Wild Swans, I found the torture and the way that people were pushed towards starvation horrifically upsetting. But with a little life, I kind of felt nothing. Please diagnose me. <laughs> <laughs> my third book was kind of another crisis it's called the western wind by samantha harvey it might be the worst book i've ever not finished and i've not finished a lot of books it was unrecommended to me which admittedly is a bad start my friend read it for a book group she gave it two out of ten but then gave the intriguing caveat if i had been in a better place mentally i would have enjoyed it more Hmm. Turned out everyone else in her book group had 10 out of 10, absolutely loved it. And now this seemed to me like a challenge. Was I mentally well enough to enjoy <laughs> this book? Um, I'll just review the circumstances when I was reading this for you so we can make a quick judgment call. I read it in July, which like all of the months this year was mid-pandemic. Um, I was in the second month of pregnancy, so both delighted and nauseated. And soon I was about to rescue some chickens. So the assessment of my mental health, inconclusive, but not especially bad. I hated the book, and that means one of two things. One, I was actually much sadder than I had thought. Or two, this book actively gives people depression. <laughs> I will tell you what happened, because as far as I remember, there's basically nothing to spoil. It's the 15th century, and the main character is the local vicar. Another character has died or disappeared. We don't care really much which. And it's always raining. At one point, the vicar eats a whole goose. This is supposed to be symbolic of something, probably. To add to this slew of excitement, the story is told backwards. So lots of the thrilling narrative is essentially repeated with only slightly more information about how much more it's raining. <laughs> probably something else happens in the last 50 pages. I'd got as far as revealing the whodunit and the word revealing here is a little bit too exciting and then gave up. Either the book or the glorious 2020 summer wore me down, and I'm not sure which. Right, I'm running out of time. Number four is The Story of Art by E.H. Gombrich. Very straightforward, this one. It's the story of art from the beginning of time up to page 300, which is about as far as I've got this year. It's very long. This book is fascinating and beautiful and full of information. And when I've told people I've been researching art this year, I basically mean I've been reading this book along with my other favorite, Louvre Guide de Visite. Although that one's more of a picture book because I can't read it in French. If you want to learn about art, this tells you all about when pictures were painted with oil instead of egg and what sfumato means. It means blurry. Thoroughly recommend this. And finally, very, very briefly, I've read four books about pregnancy this year and Expecting Better by Emily Oster was by a long way the only one worth reading. <laughs> uh, so overall for me this year, 
I've read more than five books, by the way. <laughs> but <laughs> my top overall three very memorable hits and two exceptionally wide misses. Thank you very much for listening. I am one of those people who who really like a little life. Um, sorry, but I think I think that point you made about when you read something is really important because like I wasn't told it was the world's most brilliant book mm. before I read it. I just knew it was like you say a bit of a misery fest, and I often have to read really miserable stuff for my work. So I very much mm. had it on my shelf for do not read until you are feeling like you can handle something not being okay and I read it prior to all of this pandemic stuff and and really enjoyed it but I think in that same way you talked about with the news if everything is terrible you don't want terrible things right absolutely and I think I read that earlier on in the pandemic when I just remember like going back and forth from my garden which was you know I'm lucky to have a garden I'm not complaining but like it just felt like I was in like this cycle and I'd never end this book and I'd just be stuck in my house and my garden the whole time so you know like it could be other things I, I think it's excellently written and I don't think it's bad and I understand why people love it but I just found it like too much for me I think see I, I my main takeaway was that it was weirdly hopeful um, I don't know what that oh. says about me. I, I was expecting it to be much bleaker. Maybe that makes me a terrible person. That's so strange because maybe I think I must have gone in with the opposite thing because people are like, oh, it's the most amazing book ever. And that's all I'd ever when heard. people do that when they're like, oh, mm. this is brilliant. You're like, oh, no, now I have expectations. <laughs> I have great expectations and now it's going to disappoint me. Yeah, I think I think that must have been it. What was um, the, the Shadow of the Western Wind you were talking about? What, what's the goose? Oh, mate, it's just, it's so not interesting enough to explain. <laughs> so, well, I don't even really think it was that clear. But at some point he gets given a goose by someone who may or may not have had something to do with the murder because they might have been someone who was very important in the town or something. And his wife gives the priest a goose and he's not supposed to eat a goose or he does. I don't, I, I, it was like so tedious. And then he'd like explain that he'd been eating a goose for like half of the book. Oh, it that was, sounds um, fascinating. I'd, I'd be really interested to talk to someone who does like it and find out what they like about it. Because in theory, it's, it's like a really interesting pre- premise in that you find out someone has disappeared or been murdered at the beginning and then it works backwards and you find out. But actually what happened was just it repeated itself so much and it was so tedious. And um, with your your giant history of all the art things ever, <laughs> what was the thing you, you picked up from that that you found most, most exciting? The problem is, is it's like absolutely jam-packed with information. So anything, you know, when you walk into a gallery and you're like oh, I have no clue I just don't know many pictures for me. everywhere you have yeah. to like hone in on one and start somewhere right yeah absolutely and I mean there's so many like different facts about why the ancient Egyptians painted the way that they did and all of this stuff but I guess my fundamental takeaway is like you feel a lot of pressure in art galleries but that's not how they were originally put together that was not their original purpose so for example the last supper I never knew this the last supper was painted in a monastery refectory <laughs> So like you would have canteen mural. Yeah, exactly. And like if you think about that from like schools and stuff, we used to have like murals. No one would really look at it. I mean, people probably would have looked at it because it was Leonardo da Vinci and Jesus and stuff. But yeah, like then if you're expected to look at like 20 to like a million different pieces in the same gallery, depending on how big the gallery is, it's just it's too much. Like you're not expected to look at that many. So that's kind of quite, I find that quite reassuring, especially because people are very snobby about that kind of thing and interpretation and stuff. I don't know. How do you feel when you walk into a gallery? It 
might just be I feel like an idiot all the time no I mean I think it depends a little bit on the gallery I kind of I have to be in the right mm. frame of mind to go into it I, I I don't I either just walk around and kind of passively look at everything or I kind of will go and sketch or or kind of go and and mm. kind of take more more time with it but I always really like it when I know a bit about it because I find it much more much more interesting like I think if you just look at a painting you can obviously have a response to it mm. and that's that's great but you can't guarantee that and if there's loads of people in the way or you're tired or the tube was busy or whatever it's much harder to kind of conjure that response so but I find that if I know stuff about the artist's like process or what they were doing or why they were trying to do something it means even if mm. I don't like the work I can be interested in it yeah absolutely there is so much education that kind of helps get to a place where you can appreciate stuff and also there are so many different ways of appreciating something if there's something that I like looking at i.e it's beautiful like that's a very easy way to appreciate it and that's fine that's great but like something more difficult like I find Lucian Freud quite difficult to understand and grasp therefore I need some like more background or just like find a lot of art quite funny one of my favorite paintings (laughs) is like these two naked women and one of them's just pinching the other one's nipple but I just find that really funny but like to I guess to appreciate it in a deeper maybe way you do need to understand some context of like why are they naked why is she pinching her nipple but I think this comes back to what we were talking about earlier with sort of genre and the kind of back weighting of the past because there's a certain amount that art of the various forms like paintings or or written word or whatever was scarcer Mm. in the past because fewer people had the resources to to do it but by putting all this stuff in giant gold frames and in galleries and you kind of think about it in a gallery mindset right um so you know this painting of you know I'm a terrible sham saying this I don't know this painting you're talking about but the idea that it couldn't just be Mm. like it couldn't Mm. be humorous and that be the point of it almost there must be a worthy meaning that you're missing but actually it's like people in the past also had a sense of humor and they also said rude words and they yeah. also liked dirty jo- I mean they love dirty jokes everything's full of them and like half the paintings are full of them I kind of half of it is is kind of getting yourself in on the dirty jokes I think it's quite titillating to be honest so Zoe thank you so much for joining us today if people want to find out more about you and your research where do they find you that is an excellent question. Um, I should really have more things online, but I am new to, to putting my work out. I, uh, I kind of didn't put stuff on the internet while I was doing most of my degree because I didn't want to deal with internet trolls while also trying to do my degree. But I have a Twitter, which has about two followers, which is at the ZHM. And I am on a podcast that will be coming out soon uh called live laugh lovecraft that's got absolutely nothing to do with my research well i say it's got nothing to do with my research um that is a dungeons and dragons podcast where we play dungeons and dragons but uh, i'm drawing on a lot of my 18th century gender history because it's sort of partially set in the victorian era so you can see me chat about women's involvement in botanical science because who doesn't need that in their lives brilliant so if you want to find out more about live life lovecraft follow zoe on twitter and if you want to follow us we are alt book club on facebook thank you very much for listening and i hope you have a happy new year bye